Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and today we have Dr. Peter Snell teaching us on the prophets before the exile. So typically, when the prophets are split up, what we're used to is that they're split up into major and minor prophets. But the timeline of these prophets is not really considered when you split them in that way. And so we have the biggest of the prophetic books separated from the smallest of the prophetic books, which is one way to do it. But what we're going to do today is we study the Old Testament in groupings. And last week we did the wisdom and poetry literature. And this week we're going to do the prophets before the exile. So before the Israelites were sent into Babylon and before they returned, there were a series of prophets Those are the ones that we'll look at today. And so there's uh, approximately 10 prophets that we'll look at today. It's a lot to get through. And then next week, we'll be looking at the prophets after the exile. I personally think it's a really interesting way to split up the prophets, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So let's go to Peter right now as he teaches on the prophets before the exile. All All right, everybody, good morning. Thanks for coming in today. We're going to be covering a lot of ground today. Uh, So just like Kyle said, we've been going through the Old Testament in kind of a survey form. Today we're going to be going through the prophets before the exile. So before the Babylonian exile. So that's how we'll move through these books. If you're like me, these are not books that we study extensively, you know, in church or throughout our uh, Christian walk. But there are books in in the Old Testament that I really feel like we can gain something from if we just look at them individually and then kind of look at the overall themes that um, kind of overarch the whole story of the prophetic messages. So let's jump right in. Let's recap real quick. Kyle took us through the poetic uh, books last week. This week we're going to be talking about these specific books. And like I said, we're going to be moving pretty fast. So um, we'll try to keep it entertaining and high yield for you. And then we have Christmas in the Commons next week, and then Scott will pick up with the prophets after the exile in two weeks. All right. So just to kind of give you a framework of where we are. So, you know, remember the people of God, the children of God, they wanted a king, so they got uh, God to anoint Saul, right, as the first king of the people of God. And so uh, Saul then, you know, Uh, gave the throne over to David. David's son Solomon took over after him. And now we're moving into a kingdom divided. So um, in about 930 BC, Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, was in charge. And under his reign, there were tons of complaints, lots of economic discord, and eventually it it led to the the nation of God to be split into two kingdoms, right? The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So I'll be referring to those a lot today. The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. And both are still referred to, even though they're two separate kingdoms, we're still referring to them as, the, you'll hear me say, the people of God or God's nation or God's chosen people. So think of both of those kingdoms whenever I use that term. And another thing to remember in all these prophets that we go through, Uh, Different prophets will prophesy to one kingdom or the other. Sometimes the message that they preach to one kingdom filters through to the other kingdom eventually, Um, but it applies to both kingdoms. Okay, so I just don't want people to get caught up in the terminology because I hear these words, Judah, Israel, you know, you kind of, you can get lost in all of this. So I just want to kind of lay the framework there before we jump right in. So let's get started. So, Here's the map of what we'll be talking about. The kingdom of Israel was the northern kingdom. 
it's in blue and then right below that in yellow is the kingdom of judah which would be the southern kingdom and they're going to be the major players today so the first prophet that we're going to talk about is probably the most extensive one the major est one i don't know if that's a word but it's uh, isaiah so I've, I've included this timeline with each of these prophets so that you can kind of see chronologically where all these guys line up. So uh, if I had a pointer, which I don't think I do, maybe there is. We'll upgrade for Christmas or something. Oh, okay. So, um, I, oh, it's green. That's awesome. Uh, Isaiah's right here in the round like 750 B.C. Oh, I didn't even need the pointer. I made my own pointer there. So um, the book of Isaiah, not this Isaiah, if you're confused at all, but the book of Isaiah is referred to as the, me- the Messianic prophet or the Prince of Prophets because he was thought to be the, the most quoted prophet from the Old Testament in the New Testament because he has so many messages. He, he talks about the coming king, the coming Messiah. Um, he's a very well-connected prophet. He was uh, brushed shoulders with the lines of kings a lot. And one important thing about him is he actually served under four different kings, um, uh, four different kings of Judah, which is uh, kind of impressive. If you think about the, the reign of a king at these times, sometimes it was longer than others. But um, that, that made his influence very great since he had so much exposure to uh, several different um, kings. So during this time of Isaiah, there was great turmoil in Judah. Um, So like I said, these are the major players right here. And basically what happened was Israel and Syria, these two kingdoms, um, they were getting attacked by Assyria, okay? And Israel and Syria asked Judah for aid. So these guys are together, they're getting attacked by this guy, and Judah, they're asking Judah to help them. Well, Judah refuses. So Israel and Syria, since they wouldn't help them, they're going to now attack them. So um, since they retaliate, Judah asks Assyria, who's the bad guys in the story, right, to help them fight. So Judah and Assyria end up beating and defeating Israel and Syria and fighting them off. But it ends up being a bad thing. Isaiah prophesies against that. He doesn't think that's a good idea for Judah to kind of get into cahoots with Assyria because Assyria is now uh, has a stranglehold on Judah and now they can put their influence into their their kingdom. Um, So it's not going to work out for them in the end. I'll mention those conflicts. That's the overall general conflict that's going on during the major prophets. So each of these prophets I talk about it's going to be in and amongst that, that timeline, this country attacking this country, this country attacking this country, okay? Um, there's two distinct sections in Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, and then 40 through uh, 66, so leading up to the Babylonian exile and then directly after. Isaiah uses a lot of literary devices, really beautiful language throughout the book. It uses personification, talking about the sun and moon are ashamed, the mountains and forests burst into song. There's a lot of imagery that it uses, talking about um, the name of the Lord coming with burning anger. His breath is like a rushing torrent rising up to the neck. Um, There's allusion where he refers back to things that have already happened in the Old Testament, like the story of Gideon, the story of the Exodus from Egypt. The, study, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he even has some sarcasm in there, which I think was kind of interesting because we don't think about sarcasm being much in the Bible. But uh, at one time he was 
there's one section where he's denouncing the worship of idols, and he actually says, who shapes a god and casts an idol? What can profit nothing? Or which can profit nothing? Like, what are you doing? Why are you worshiping these idols? What is that going to profit you? Um, you know, it just sounds like something like Jerry Seinfeld would say, or, you know, something like that. So, to, just to kind of summarize, the book of Isaiah, I told you we'd be moving fast. There are some few core themes that I'll be going through with each prophet. And so these are the themes in Isaiah. One is that judgment is coming. So this idea that God uses an evil nation to come in and cleanse his chosen people. So the, Israel, the, the people of Israel, people of Judah are not following God's command. So he uses an outside nation like Assyria, Babylon, Persia to come in and cleanse them. And they actually take over uh, or fight the Israelites and, uh, and the people of Judah, and they, cause, they kill a bunch of them off. And what remains is this holy seed. So it, there, there's purification by fire, uh, and there's this holy seed or this remnant that remi- remains. And we'll see this imagery throughout the book. And then God, of course, after he uses the evil nation to come in and clean Israel and Judah up, then he destroys the evil nation. So, you know, he he kind of uses it as a tool and then he destroys them. There's a message of hope in Isaiah. It portrays how the Messiah is, that's who we're, we're moving towards. The Messiah will bring the ultimate victory through suffering and death. And all this turmoil of these nations that I mentioned earlier is pointing towards establishing a new king and a new Jerusalem. So Isaiah is a book of paradox. There's judgment and mercy. There's grace and discipline. There's justice and forgiveness. And the take-home point from Isaiah I think we we need to understand is a lot of times the ball is in our court. The responsibility is on us how we're going to to react. Are we going to react with faith or are we going to react with unbelief? So moving on to Hosea. Hosea, uh, around 700 B.C., he was a prophet to the northern kingdom as Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom. So there were lots of prophets that I'll speak of this morning that were contemporaries of each other. So just keep that in mind. that Some of them are talking about the same timeline uh, at the same time. Hosea warned Israel of the coming captivity of Assyria, and he demonstrated God's relationship to Israel in kind of a unique way. And it was written over a 25-year period, uh, 25 year period. So the major themes in Hosea, and I couldn't talk about Hosea without including a couple of words about <laughs> redeeming love. Has anyone ever read Redeeming Love? Don't lie. You know you've read it. Uh, it's like a Christian fiction novel about, but loosely based on the story of Hosea. Uh, it was really popular back in the day, I think when I was in like college but um, I guess it's not popular now. Um, It's a unique book of prophecy because Hosea ties much of his prophecies back to his personal life. So you don't see this with any of the other prophets. Um, God commands Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And then Gomer goes off and cheats on Hosea, and she's left by the man who she cheats on him with. And God commands Hosea to go buy back uh, Gomer as his wife again and take her back. So this is a demonstration of God's relationship to Israel. God is the faithful husband in this book who gives his children everything and uh, is constantly loving. And Israel is the unfaithful spouse that's led astray and starts worshiping idols. So I think it's important for us to understand in this story that God and this covenant that he's made with us, he could stop, he could cut this covenant off with us at any time that he wanted. Whenever his, his children are... Uh, obeying him or disobeying him or acting wicked 
ultimately he he could cut that covenant off at any time but instead each time this happens he renews his covenant and pursues his people again which i think speaks to his divine nature his compassion and his faithfulness you know, he has to do that because that's what his nature is his very nature is that of love and compassion so you know you've read francine rivers redeeming love all right um so the summary of Hosea, in the same way that God's love will not quit for His people, God's love also comes to us in the form of constant pursuit of us. So He wants to be in a relationship with us, and it's only up to us to embrace that relationship and run to Him, because He's, he's coming after us. The next prophet we'll go through is Joel. So Joel was one of the earlier prophets. He was lesser known than some of the other ones that we'll talk about, but he was very familiar with temple worship. So we think that Joseph, I mean, I'm sorry, Joel, was um, living in and amongst Jerusalem, the Jerusalem area. So he was probably very familiar with temple worship. And it was one of the earliest prophetic writings, although there's lots of debate as to what year it actually was written. So, you know, sometimes these things are hit or miss. He prophesied during the, the reign of the seven-year-old King Joash, um, which... It blows my mind every time I think about the, a seven-year-old king. You know, if you can just imagine, like, a child making decisions about with people's lives. Uh, it's kind of crazy to think about that. But uh, unfortunately, uh, it might have even worked out better if Joash made his own decisions because Joash's wicked father and grandmother um, were a heavy influence on the way things were done during his reign. And so as a result, idol worship really flourished when uh, Joash was king. Um, so, the major themes in Joel, Joel urges the people of Judah to turn back to God, just like most all of the prophets do. And he gives some of the most vivid descriptions. So, this is the unique thing about Joel. He gives a lot of vivid descriptions of God's judgment to come. So, he talks about days being cloaked in darkness and the moon turning to blood. Um, so, he even uses a recent natural disaster to demonstrate his point about the the uh, impending doom that, that uh, God's people are sure to suffer from if they don't change their ways. So they had just had a plague of locusts come through and just decimate their crops. And so he kind of used that in uh, one of his prophe prophecies saying like, okay, so you see how devastating this plague of locusts was. How much more will the devastation be when God wreaks his havoc uh, on you for your wickedness? So just an interesting uh, thing that Joel uses in prophesying. So the summary of Joel is, Joel is a strong dose of apocalyptic imagery, and this is a quote from a source I read. Joel is a strong dose of apocalyptic imagery that might just do the trick of opening your eyes to the necessity of faithfully following after God every moment of your life. So I kind of think of Joel as like, you know that movie, The Passion of the Christ, how when it came out, it was very shocking to see some of these like graphic depictions of what actually happened to Jesus, and it was very moving. If you saw it, it, it it hurts your heart. It was very uh, disturbing in a way to see actually someone uh, going through that in a visual way. I think in the same way Joel uses his very descriptive language to shock his readers into feeling some of these ways or trying to change their heart. So that's the unique thing about Joel. Um, so Amos. Amos is next. He was a fairly early prophet as well. Uh, around the time of Joel in 800 to 825 BC. One source said 760 to 750 BC. Um, so Amos was a shepherd.
from Judah, and he actually had no ministry credentials at all. Some of the commentaries you'll read say that he was very—he was a very good writer, and he knew a lot of uh, things about literature. And so they think that he might have had more education than we originally thought. But for uh, for what we know for sure is he was just a shepherd. So the Book of Amos was written during a time of economic prosperity in Israel. Uh, due to King Jeroboam. So he had made all of these conquests and, and made all these really um, good political decisions that had led to Israel being very profitable and very uh, prosperous. But the problem was the moral fiber at the time of Amos was just terrible. It was just people were uh, living in extravagance and indulgence. They were oppressing the poor and the judicial system was completely corrupt. And so, although it was a time of prosperity, there was a, a lot of underlying uh, decay in the moral fiber of the society. So, the major themes of Amos kind of play into that. Since there was such indulgence and extravagance, a lot of times the, poor got, uh, the oppression of the poor uh, was a major issue. And so, in response to all this materialism, Amos gives God's perspective on some volatile social issues in his book of prophecy. So uh, many were exploited, as I said before, and the book of Amos really focuses on how God is very disinterest, uh, very interested excuse me, in the disadvantaged. So um, I think it's important for us to realize because I feel like we have uh, you know, a very prosperous society. Uh, you know, we have nice houses, you know, warm beds to go home to, and it's always important for us to remember how, how much the disadvantaged and the downtrodden are the, uh, one of the highlights of God's um, goals for us to, to um, I guess what I'm trying to say is how, how much God wants us to pay special attention to the disadvantaged. So. Um, that's what they do in Amos. So the, uh, the people of Israel, their worship was in, empty and their songs were hollow. So another thing that, they, that it talks about in Amos is how when people would worship, they would, do, they would do the sacrifices that were correct. They would sing the right songs. They would pray the right prayers. But it was all hollow because they were just empty on the inside. It was just, uh, it was just a show. And it even goes as far as to say in Amos chapter 5, verse 21, that God says through Amos to, the, to Israel, I cannot stand your assemblies. Like he uses those words. Like your services, the things that you're doing, you're doing the right sacrifices, but I can't stand it because it's so meaningless. And it even says at the end of that section in chapter 5, and verse 24, you know, you're doing all these things and you're worshiping with the right motions, but your heart is decayed. Your heart is dead. And so as a result, justice is going to roll in like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. So you're going to get what you, what you deserve, basically. Um, so um, that's one of the main takeaway points from Amos. Amos gives God's final warning to Israel before um, they are taken over by Assyria. So it's like one last chance for them to change what they're doing, which of course they don't. And um, Assyria comes in and takes over. So the summary of Amos is Amos reminds us that works such as preaching, teaching, and worshiping, those are all good. Those are all great things. And they're central to a believer's life, but they all ring hollow if we don't have love and serve others in our own lives. Okay, so 
you know, this idea of lip service. We can't just be people that come to church and our religion ends there. We have to live that out after we leave, leave the doors of the building and uh, make sure we pay special attention to the poor and the oppressed. All right, the next book that we'll talk about is Obadiah. Obadiah, was around 800, possibly 600 B.C. We will be honest, we don't know anything about Obadiah <laughs> except that he wrote this book. Uh, there, was, uh, there was one account that said that his name means a worshiper of Yahweh or a servant of the Lord. So if you're looking for baby names out there, maybe, I don't know if you guys are settled yet, but <laughs> Obadiah, I don't know. Uh, so um, Oba, I don't know. Um, Obadiah, Nahum, and Habakkuk are the only prophets that actually have the prophets going out and prophesying to a different nation besides the people of God. So, uh, you know, at all the rest of the prophet books, that it's, it's, it consists of a prophet going in and telling the nation of Israel and Judah, saying, hey, you guys need to get your act together. But these three guys actually go to other nations and say, you guys need to get your act together. Um, Obadiah is also the shortest book in the Old Testament, if you're looking for Guinness World Records there. Uh, major themes in Obadiah. So, this is this was kind of an interesting storyline I found in Obadiah. So, remember the nation of Edom. Edom was where they were the descendants of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the blessed nation. Esau was not, and he uh, he kind of uh, led this nation of Edom. And uh, so God was angry with the nation of Edom uh, because they were Israel's neighboring country and. They were very opportunistic and they were very sneaky about it. So what would happen is these guys, like Assyria, would come in and try to take over Judah and Israel. Or they would come in and try to, uh, you know, they would invade one of these cities. And while they are invading one of these uh, one of these countries or one of these kingdoms, uh, you know, there'd be an attack and the people would try to flee like out of the city. Well, the Edomites would sit at the city gates and they would actually kill the people of Judah and Israel as they ran out of the city so that they could run in and plunder their houses and their livestock and their, uh, their goods um, without officially like declaring war on them, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, long story short, God was angry with Edom for doing this and for treating his people that way. So Obadiah informs Edom that you do not want to get between God and his people. Um, and as punishment for their actions against Israel, God completely wipes out the Edomites uh, by the first century A.D. So there uh, are a couple of kings in, uh, you know, after Christ is born that can trace their lineage back to Edom. But after the first century, they're gone. Like the, the entire nation is not spoken of again. So that just demonstrates the power of God to just completely wipe out uh, a nation like this in whatever way. He, he does. So the summary of the book of Obadiah, even though it's a short book, Edom's behavior is kind of a symptom of a broader disease of the human condition. Um, because, you know, I think we can see a lot of parallels, you know, in, in our present day about how there are people maybe at work or in, you know, wherever you might see that are very opportunistic who, you know, they don't want to be in the, in the spotlight and uh, they don't want to declare war on somebody, but they'll go behind people's backs and, you know, uh, do these things uh, to, to get ahead, to get advantage. And um, I think the lesson we can learn here is God doesn't like that. I mean, I think that's against what he wants. And so just as Edom, 
Edom received the brunt of God's justice in the same way God's going to deal with sin when his kingdom returns. Um, so that's the book of Obadiah. So next we'll move on to Jonah. Jonah was one of the earliest uh, prophets um, that we have recorded. And Jonah is actually really interesting because it's a unique narrative that's different than all the rest of the prophet books. So uh, we all know the story of Jonah, right? Jonah was this reluctant prophet who felt like God was being too nice on people. So, you know, God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. So Nineveh is actually, you know, a city in the, in the nation of Assyria. So these were the, the bad guys, you know. So um, he actually wants, he, God wants Jonah to go into the nation of Assyria and uh, prophesy to them and preach to them, tell them to turn from their wicked ways. And so when God asks Jonah to do that, Jonah doesn't want to do it, and he runs away on a ship. Why does he do that? You know, why can you think you can escape God? I don't know. But a storm arises. The sailors that are with him get superstitious, and they find out that Jonah is a prophet of God. They cast, they cast a die, and they figure out that Jonah's the reason why. And they're like, why, are, why is this happening to us, Jonah? And Jonah's like, oh, well, uh, you know, I ticked off God. Maybe that's why you know, we're in this huge storm right now. And so they're like, why did you do this? So the sailors, who are not even like, uh, you know, followers of God, they say, you know, like, what are we going to do? And so Jonah says, no, no, guys, I'll jump out of the, I'll jump out of the ship. Um, and so when he does that, a fish swallows Jonah. Jonah prays while he's in the belly of the fish. And what's interesting is he never actually says, I'm sorry to God when he's in the belly of the fish, even though God has just kind of saved him. He says, thank you for saving me or thank you for protecting me. Um, which is just kind of an interesting point. Um, and so the fish vomits back out Jonah onto the land, and Jonah preaches to Nineveh, even though it's like a five-word like five sermon. Uh, he just says, like, you need to repent, you know, plus two more words. You need to repent. Maybe one more word. Um, and Nineveh actually repents. They follow, even though his sermon was just like a one sentence, they actually repent. And so Jonah is actually angry with God after that for sparing Nineveh, and he argues with God about it. So that's kind of the, you know, the extra part of the story that we don't really go into, and there's not, it's not part of a cool ch children's song. Um, but the book actually ends with no resolution of this back and forth between God and Jonah. So I think the major themes, the major take-home points about Jonah is no one is so far beyond hope that they can't be brought back. And so I think it's important for us to point out that God wants to extend grace and mercy to even the worst of people. So even the people that we think are, very, are much below us and uh, are beyond you know, forgiveness, God cares about those people and no one is beyond hope. God uses a reluctant prophet as a vehicle of his grace. So he's always using these unlikely scenarios to, um, to accomplish his will. And then the summary of Jonah, Jonah serves as a mirror for us to examine our own attitudes about the extent of God's grace. Think about this today. Are you okay with God loving his enemies enough to spare them punishment? Are you okay with that? And I think your answer should be, you better be because you are his enemy. So when we have sin in our lives, he cannot be with us. And so that's why he actually sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be cleansed and we can finally be in relationship with him and be united to him. So um, thank God for his, uh, you know, his amazing willingness to never give up on us. 
All right, Micah. Micah uh, was a contemporary of Isaiah and also was alive during the reign of several different kings. Micah, does anybody know what this is? That's right. <laughs> it's a mineral called mica. Anyway, uh, spelled differently. Um, but it's, uh, the name mica means who is like the Lord. It's another pretty name. I don't know. You might want to add it to the list. Um, so uh, Micah describes some of the most significant prophecies about Christ's birth. So he talks about Christ uh, being born in Bethlehem. He talks about Christ's eternal nature. So these are some unique things about the book of Micah. And he reminds us that he cares, uh, God off cares and offers hope for those who choose to remain faithful to him, even when it seems distant and uninvolved. So, you know, a lot of times the uh, similar to Amos and warning Judah to pay special attention to the social justice. So Syria, who was eventually invading Israel and kind of occupying them, they were notorious for their brutal and inhumane practices. So the Assyrians, they did, I mean, if you Google it or you do any reading about the Assyrians, there were some terrible things that they would do to the people that they captured. And so this likely was the reason that uh, Micah had this special message towards the people that were you know, struggling with the Assyrians at the time. Um, you know, they're afraid. They're afraid that these Assyrians are seeing these brutal practices and they're afraid that God has forgotten them or they're, you know, they're losing hope. And so that's one of the major messages of Micah is that God um, is never failing and he is always recognizing the downtrodden in our society. And of course, uh, you know, the famous verse in Micah 6, 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Um, really, really wonderful verse about how to practically live and um, serve God. So that's Micah. Next is Nahum. We're moving right, we're moving right along. Nahum was closer to the 600 B.C.s, and the name Nahum means comfort, but otherwise Nahum is pretty much an unknown prophet. We don't know a whole lot about him. Um, like I said earlier, he, he wrote one of the three books that are actually address other nations rather than the people of God. And so he addresses the Assyrians of Nineveh. So uh, if you think of Nahum, Nahum is kind of like a continuation of the story of Jonah. So remember I told you in, in Jonah, Jonah had, prophet, or had prophesied to the Ninevites. The Ninevites had repented and they had changed their ways and Jonah was mad about it, but it was great because this is what God wanted to happen. And then about 150 years later, the Ninevites turned back to their old ways. So um, they started becoming wicked again and uh, not, following, um, not following what God had asked them to do. And so in response, God sends Nahum to the Ninevites. And at that time, Assyria had a stranglehold on Judah through the puppet king Manasseh, uh, who was the king of, the, Judah, uh, king of the, the kingdom of Judah at the time. So Nahum's message warning Assyria would have given Judah encouragement um, that their primary oppressor would be judged soon. So kind of like the previous book, uh, the book of Nahum is really kind of trying to encourage um, encourage one group of people while chastising another. So, you know, Nahum is really getting after the Assyrians saying, hey, you guys need to change your wicked ways. And as the people of Judah hear this, they're thinking, oh yeah, you know, get them, get them, God. <laughs> you know, so they're, they're, they're happy that, to see that God's judgment is coming on someone that's oppressing them. 
So major themes in Nahum, God is in control of history and will not allow evil to persist forever. Nahum is a continuation of the story of Jonah, just like we said, except the ending is a little opposite. And uh, we see that you know, Assyria, since they didn't follow what God wanted them to do, they actually become captured themselves or get defeated by the Babylonians. So what appears to be the darkest period of Israel and Judah's history, Nahum offers a message of hope that this too shall pass. So hang in there. God has a plan. Similarly, God's present-day chosen people can feel encouraged that when we feel fatigue and cultural uh, resistance of sin, that we're going to be rewarded one day. So you might feel like, oh, I'm missing out now, uh, or I feel you know, neglected now, but um, these, are, these are things that God commands us to do and that it's not, an unhealthy, it's not an unhealthy feeling to have, but we should always remember that we're going to be rewarded one day. Next is Habakkuk, and we're getting close. The book of Habakkuk is uh, around 600 BC. He was a prophet to the nation of Judah, and he came along when things in Judah were really bad. So children were being sacrificed, which is awful. King Jehoiakim, which was an evil king, he refused to listen to the prophets and even arrested some and killed some. Uh, so it's a really bad time. And uh, most of the prophets speak to the people on God's behalf, but this, this book is unique. Habakkuk is unique because it's actually Habakkuk talking to God and saying like, hey, God, what, you know, what's going on? This is, why are we having to experience so many terrible things here? So uh, he asked God a lot of questions about like, can a just God ignore injustice? Um, why does he allow wicked people to prosper? Um, and can a good God use evil to accomplish his purposes? Because we see him using these countries full of wicked people to accomplish his goals. And so, you know, he's kind of like, what's going on here, God? And they're all very, very, very valid questions, right? We, have, we struggle with these questions about suffering, about, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? And so the major themes of Habakkuk is kind of this a dialogue between him and God. God has a plan to deal with evil in the world as much as we might feel at times like he doesn't have a plan. So that's the major takeaway point when these, when these bad things do happen. There's not a great answer for it. Of course, it's a very complex, uh, it's a very complex question, but um, I think it's important to look at the example of Habakkuk and see that God has a plan. We have to trust in that plan. And it, uh, the book of Habakkuk reminds us that no place is too dark and uh, no wall too thick for God's grace to penetrate in a very powerful and life-affirming way. I really like the the, the wording of that statement. Um, so, Zephaniah, and uh, we're running out of time, but Zeph Zephaniah, um, he was a prophet to the people of Judah. He was descendant of one of Israel's good kings, Hezekiah. And so, I'll be honest, there is not a whole lot new in Zephaniah other than what I have talked about, like, probably, you know, eight times already, already. Um, but, uh, Zephaniah is very similar to the other books of prophecy that we've discussed. It talks about the balances between judgment and salvation with God's people, warns of impending judgment, and predicts justice would prevail. So are you starting to get the picture about you know, what these prophetic books are all about? Um, so it's hard to separate prophetic books of the Bible without keeping the end game in sight, which I think is important to to point out. Much of the end game in the story of God's chosen people, the, the, the point of all these prophets, um, 
can really be summarized in the last half of Isaiah. And you know, for the sake of time, we're, we won't watch the video because um, it's about eight, eight minutes long. I want us to get it out on time. But um, in chapters 49 through 50, um, we see these conclusions that uh, Isaiah talks about. He talks a lot about the coming Messiah and the coming cleansing of Israel so that there is a new Jerusalem. He talks about this new Jerusalem uh, as this new city. So the conclusions from all of these major prophets, I think, can be summed up into these statements. God's going to remove the wicked from his city forever. And if you can't, you know, his city means his kingdom, his, his people. He was going to remove the wicked eventually forever. His servants will inherit a new Jerusalem. So this is heaven imagery, right? So after the wicked are removed, then um, the servants will remain and they will inherit this wonderful inheritance. And the people of all nations are invited to join in God's covenant. So this is not, this is not a, uh, a gift that is exclusively given to uh, one group of people but not offered to another group. Everyone has offered this and all you have to do is uh, follow the commandments of God in order to join in this covenant. And in these ways, in these th previous three ways, the kingdom of God is going to be established on earth as it is in heaven. So this imagery of once we have the new king, who is the Messiah and the new Jerusalem, then we will now have God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You know, you've heard that phrase before. And so um, these are just a few of the whirlwind topics. You know, we've been through 10 books of the Bible in about 30 minutes. So I appreciate your time and uh, patience with that. But I hope that's something that you can gain from um, these books of the Bible. And hopefully if, you, if you're interested in learning more about them, um, you know, we've watched the Bible Project videos in here before. They can go in depth about some of these books and tell a more broad study about them. Or I encourage you to just read the books yourselves because uh, there's a lot there. So um, with that, that'll end our lesson. Okay, so I want to thank Peter for doing an awesome job. I think it's a very, very high bar of difficulty to teach on 10 different books of the Bible in one Sunday. But I think he just knocked it out of the park. I think it helps, of course, with prophetic books that the character of God and the message of God and what God wants for his people is a consistent thing, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Of course, these uh, books and these prophets, you know, they existed over a span of two or three hundred years, and so these are uh, prophecies and these are stories and these are messages for different generations of Israelites and people of Judah, um, and it is, of course, interesting and relevant that these messages apply to us, that we should care for the less than, and we should care for justice, and we should be merciful people. Uh, we should also be holy people, and uh, God is both a God of love, and He is also a God of holiness. And I think those are the two central messages of God, and that has always been His desire for His people. Um, so, so many more things that could be said about these books. And I'm just grateful to Peter for the time that he spent. He sent me an email last night at, I think, 3.30. So he'd obviously spent a tremendous amount of time on it, and I think it really showed. So thank you again to Peter, and thank you uh, for those of you who are out there listening. We do appreciate it. We'll be back next week with Scott Frizzell. Actually, in two weeks, I apologize. In two weeks, we will wrap up our Old Testament series with a look at the prophets that followed the exile. And so I think there's maybe seven or so that follow the exile, and we will study those together in a couple weeks. Hope you have a blessed week. Again, thanks for listening to the Howland Bridge Builders podcast. 
We do appreciate all listens. We are at episode 52. It's crazy to think that we are already that many uh, episodes into this whole endeavor. And uh, man, I look forward to hitting episode 100 one day. I hope we get there. So have a blessed week. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.